0: Well, if you look at the title of the sermon, you might not uh, resonate with that question. Maybe you do. Maybe you wish the church was more political. Maybe you wish that it uh, did more, uh, at, was more active in the socio-political scene that we occupy, uh, But maybe, uh, particularly if you're a visitor and you're kind of curious about this Christianity thing and you you don't know uh, exactly, uh, you don't know a lot about the church, but you know that there's always people on CNN, there's always pastors on Fox News making some sort of political statement or another, maybe you, your instinct is actually the church should be less political. Why is the church so political? But we have those kinds of questions. I don't know if you've thought any about this. I imagine that you have. Who are you voting for come November? I'm gonna switch mics. Shouldn't there be a pamphlet about that in the back? Shouldn't there be some sort of statement about what we believe, about these kinds of things? Shouldn't you have heard from one of your pastors by now who they're voting for? And you haven't. And maybe you've wondered why. Why is there not an official policy on these kinds of things? Well, we are going to talk about that exact question this morning, And we're using this passage in John 18 to do so. And the reason why this is particularly informative for us is because we find Jesus Christ in a political conflict. Jesus, As so often happens in the history of the world, we have a spiritual leader and a civil leader in conflict with one another. There's no culture that's ever existed that hasn't had this kind of problem. Religious authorities civil social authorities in conflict. Jesus has a conflict with a civil authority, and His answer is particularly informative as we think about our own relationship, the church's relationship, to the other institutions that characterize our lives. You are not just a churchgoer. You may have been a churchgoer all your life, but you're not just a churchgoer. You also go to schools. You also are a participant at work. You are a citizen of the United States, perhaps. You have these other institutions that are a part of your life. What is the relationship between the church and those other organizations? Jesus gives us a basic framing principle to think about that relationship. Whatever the church is, it is not of this world. We need to tease out what that means. We need to figure out how we are to apply that into our own circumstances and our own lives. We're going to look at three defining characteristics of the church. Jesus says that the church is this unique thing. All those other institutions in which you are a part, your schools, your workplaces, your go- the government, uh, governmental institutions that characterize our life, they are all Good, but they are part of this world. And the church is unlike any of those things. It is part of another world. It is not from this world. It is unique in its identity. It is not just another institution. We're going to look at three defining characteristics of the church to figure out how is it unique. First, we're going to look at the uh, ruler of the church, the king of this kingdom that Jesus proclaims. Second, we're going to look at the realm for this church, the area that it occupies, that over which Jesus rules. What is, is he, he's a king? King over what? And then third, and finally, we're going to look at the mission of the church. What are we trying to do? What do we try to accomplish as Christ's church? And if you like all your points to start with the same letter, uh, I've got good news for you. You're on. A, you came on a good Sunday. We're going to look at the person the place, and the purpose of Christ's church. First then, the person, the king, the one who rules over the church. And you'll see that this is is the key point for Pilate. Pilate wants to know, is Jesus claiming to be a king? It's a very important point. This is not a minor issue. This is not the point to quibble over words. It is the central issue because if Jesus is claiming to be a king, then Pilate has a particularly naughty problem, a particularly difficult circumstance that he has to figure out. see, if Jesus is claiming to be a king, then he is either a rebel or an enemy. And either way, he has to be put down. Either way, the punishment is death. If If his sphere of authority overlaps with Caesar, if he's making claims about authority that should properly belong to Caesar, then Jesus has to die. Pilate has no other option. Are you a king? Is it true? Jesus and Pilate go back and forth, and it can look like Jesus is being a little bit cryptic in his answer, but notice in 36 that he flatly affirms that he is a king because he has a kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. He is a king. He is declaring that he is a king of a particular kingdom. Now, we'll look at the not of this world issue in our second point, but for now, notice that he is a king. Jesus is the king of the church. Jesus is the king of his kingdom. And we see that particularly in the resurrection. It's the resurrection which seats Jesus on the throne room of heaven and earth. Flip with me, uh, if you will. We won't do a, a lot of flipping, but we need to do a little flipping. Uh, flip with me to, to Ephesians. It's just a little bit further down in your Bible. If you uh, have got a blue Bible there in front of you, it's 9. 76. This is what happens at the resurrection, okay? What does the resurrection do? It is more than just proof that Jesus is God. It actually enthrones him. Uh, verse 22, God put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is a king. And from a, a God's eye view of things, Jesus is king of the entire cosmos. Right? All things have been put under his feet. There is nothing over which Jesus does not rule. But particularly, notice how Ephesians move on. So so all things belong to Jesus, and then Jesus is given as head of over all things to an institution, an institution to which He primarily belongs, an institution over which He fundamentally rules. In this uh, age, in this present age of the world, Jesus He rules over all things, but we do not yet see all things subject to Him. What we do see is that He is ruler over His church. He gave Him as ruler over all things to the church. The church is that institution over which Jesus Christ is king. Let's reverse it. The church is unlike other institutions because it is not a human institution it is God's own people. Now, this is a big mistake that we could make straight out of the blocks about the church. We could think that the church is kind of like a club. What's a club? You know, you get together, you're, let's say you're, um, you're a yachter. Okay? It's a good state to be, you know, uh, rowing in or whatever. Let's say you're, you're, a, you're a boatsman and you, gotta, you have a club. And what does a club do? A club gets together because you have a common interest in boating. The church is not a group of people that have a common interest in Jesus Christ. Now, we all hopefully do have a common interest in Jesus Christ. That hopefully is true of us, but it is more than that. It is more than just a club in which we all happen to be together because we love Jesus Christ, we love the Reformed faith, and we love Presbyterian form of government. That's not who we are. Those are some of the things that we love, but that's not what makes us church, What makes us church is that Christ is head of this body. In my past, uh, in college days, I had a pastor, and whenever he fenced the table, whenever he came up and served the Lord's Supper, he would say, this is not the table of First Presbyterian Church. This is not the table of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. This is not our table. This table belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His table. This is His church. We exist in Conchahokan. We have a, uh, we, this is our building, bought and paid for. We can think that we own this, but we don't. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to submit to him as his body, locally manifest here in Kanchahokam. There's a whole host of implications that we could talk about here. There's a whole host of, of applications of this central point. But we can do uh, we can start actually with our order of worship and spend some time just on one central application. If that's true, if the church is the institution over which Jesus is head then if you love Jesus, you have to be a member of the church. Church is necessary. Under ordinary circumstances, you are required to be a member of a local church. There's always exceptions, there's always a thief on the cross, but church isn't optional. It is a necessary component. Well, you could not get away with just not going to work, right? If you're going to be uh, uh, an employee of your company, you are required to go to work. And if you stop going to work, you are going to stop being an employee of your company. If you never attend the meetings of your club, People are going to start to wonder about your commitment. Church isn't optional. It's actually embedded in our worship service. The necessity of it is embedded into our worship service. We open every Sunday with the call to worship. And we don't open with the call to worship because that's some nice thing that we like to do or because it's some sort of traditional thing that the church has historically done. We open to the call with the call to worship for a profoundly theological reason. It is because what we believe is happening right now is the King calling us into His presence to receive assistance and to worship in His name. I spoke the call to worship, but it is Christ's call. He is calling us to meet with Him. And if you're a Christian, you've said, this Christ is my Lord, my God, my master, whom I serve. Do not forsake his call. The church is Christ's institution. He is the head of this church. It is his kingdom. It is not a merely human entity. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And we have to listen to him and his instruction about how we are to respond within it. That's our first point. Jesus is the king. He is the person who owns the church. It centers around him. Second, over what does he rule? Jesus is the king, but king over what? And you'll notice in our text, this is, the second thing that, this, is the, this is the second thing that Jesus and Pilate talk about. Jesus affirms that he's a king, but he tells Pilate, but my kingship isn't like other kingships. It's, it's not similar to the other kinds of claims for kingship that you might encounter, Pilate. My kingship, he says, is not of this world. And Pilate... You could have kind of appreciate Pilate's stance here. Like, this is good news for Pilate. Remember, remember, Pilate is looking for a reason, an excuse not to kill Jesus. He kills him in the end. He has him killed. Both the Gentiles and the Jews rise up against this king. But Pilate is looking for a reason not to kill Jesus. And Jesus gives him one. I don't know if you've ever tried to get, have you ever tried to get out of jury duty? Here's a great way to get out of jury duty. Claim that you are an alien. You are not really a citizen of the United States. You are actually an alien from Alpha Centauri, and your word, your law is no good here. What Jesus does is he says to Pilate, I, I am a king, but I am not a king of this world. And Pilate hears that, and I don't know quite how Pilate interprets that, but he's probably thinking Jesus is a little bit crazy. The problem is not that Jesus is a rebel, an upstart, a foreign king trying to establish a kingdom in competition with Rome. Jesus is probably crazy. And Pilate's understanding is, whatever Jesus means by this, I don't have to worry about him. You see, if he's not a king in this world, if his kingship is not of this world, then it's it's not really my concern. I don't really have to deal with it. He's not in competition with Caesar. Is that what Jesus means? His Pilate got it right? A lot of times, actually, that's our intuitive uh, thought process when it comes to the church. The church is not of this world. It's a heavenly institution, not an earthly one. So, I don't have to worry about the world. The church can isolate itself. And historically, Christians have done that. They've they've isolated themselves from the rest of the world. We'll rule our own affairs. We'll do our own thing. We won't bother with our neighbors, with our governmental bodies, with the education systems that are surrounding us. We won't worry about all those things. We'll just do our own thing and cloister ourselves within our own body. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Jesus' language is metaphorical. It's difficult to interpret. But Jesus, uh, while Jesus is affirming the otherworldly character of the church, we have to understand precisely what that means. What does it mean when Jesus says, my church, my kingdom is not of this world? You're, probably your instinct, and it's a good instinct, is, well, he means that it's heavenly, Right? It's not an earthly kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom. The Bible talks of that way. Uh, Hebrews talks that way. In Hebrews 11, the heroes of faith are pursuing an unshakable kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that's not of this present world, but is higher. That's one way the Bible talks about this otherworldly kingdom, the kingdom that belongs to Christ, is that it's higher, that it's upper, it's an upper register. It's it doesn't, uh, not a part of this cosmos. It's part of the heavenly state of affairs. It's a heavenly kingdom. And so we're called to store up our treasures in heaven. But there's another way the Bible talks about it, and uh, it uses the same word, cosmos, world, to talk about uh, this idea. Sometimes the Bible, when it talks about heaven, it's not really talking about it as a place, but a time. The Bible was Einsteinian long before Einstein, right? Time and place are meshed up together. So sometimes the Bible can talk about the kingdom of God as heavenly, as a place, a heavenly temple, a heavenly tabernacle. But sometimes the Bible talks about it as a time, an age, a future reality. And it will often talk about it as both at the same time. We see it in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to turn there, and I'm going to read a little bit of Hebrews chapter 2 for you because what it does is it tells us about Christ's kingdom as two different times, okay? So in uh, 2, we have this quote from uh, the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So that's the promise that God makes of his king. I will put everything, the entire cosmos, under your feet. And we've already read in Ephesians that that has already happened when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I know this is a lot to take in. I know it's a drink from a fire hydrant. Go with me just a little longer because what then Hebrews does is he is he qualifies. He splits it. Everything is subject under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection uh, to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here's what Hebrews is telling us about the kingship of Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus is king over the whole cosmos, but only part of that kingship is visible to us. We do not yet see his perfect rule manifest in this present world. The kingdom of God has been established because He sits enthroned, but not, yet has, not every knee has bowed the knee to Jesus yet. We're still waiting for those things to happen. We're still waiting for that to be accomplished. How does that impact the church? What's the implication for us as the church? What does that mean for this body? It means that we are a pilgrim kingdom. We are a kingdom without a home. We are a kingdom without a land. We are a traveling, wandering, exiled kingdom. We are a kingdom without politics because we are not bound to any land or nation in this world. We are are a sub-national kingdom. We are waiting for the day in which we become a a kingdom in the land, as it were. And we know what that land will be. It will be the new heavens and the new earth. But we are not there yet. We are currently a pilgrim kingdom. We are in the same position that Abraham was in. He is called to be a king. You will be the father of many nations. You will be a king. But he never sees that reality in his lifetime. Rather, he is a wandering king. He has people around him. He has a family. He has big uh, 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 flocks and herds. He's reckoned by other kings as a king. Genesis 14 to check my math. But he has no land. That's how the church is to function between Christ's first and second coming. We're a kingdom out of place. How does that work out practically? It means that the basic mode of our thought process, when it comes to understanding your relationship to the rest of the world, your relationship to the civil government, to the, to the uh, schools in which you uh, are sending your kids, to your work environment, your basic understanding of the relationship between the church and those other things is the church focuses up and forward. The church, while it may be a blessing to its neighbors, while I hope that our church, in the concerts that we do, in the activities that we engage in, in the charitable affairs that, uh, that are part of our life together, our basic fundamental orientation is heavenly and spiritual. Our concern is for the future age and for the heavenly realm, which is our home. We are in the world, and we, and we are supposed to be in the world. We are supposed to be a light in the world, but we have to maintain centrally that what defines us is that we are not of the world, but of another world, of a future world order, one that Christ will bring when He returns, and our orientation, our basic orientation is not now, but then. Not here, but there. That's what defines us. And all sorts of practical questions should be blooming in your heads right now. Okay, does that, does that mean that I should, uh, should not take any sort of political stance? Does that mean that I shouldn't be involved at all in any sort of political things, what is then the mission of the church? Should I do charitable things in and around the areas that I live? What should be the orientation of the church? What is our mission? If we are essentially a heavenly institution, Christ's kingdom, which finds its most proper home in a future reality, what should I be doing right now? That's our third question, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church. What then does this impact our daily life? What should we be? Now, uh, we've done a lot of theology. I need to throw one more theological point at you. I know it's hot, I know it's warm, I know we're tired, but one more theological distinction to make before we answer that question, and it's an important one to make. We are talking in this present talk about the mission of the church not you as an individual. You see, you as an individual are a dual citizen. You are a citizen of the church and you are a citizen of the nation. And as a citizen of the nation, you are called by God who has ordained the authorities that rule over us to obey the authorities insofar as you are able. You are called to drive, thankfully now, 70 miles per hour on, uh, or thereabouts, on the, uh, on the highway, Right? You are called to obey the authorities in your life. We, are, we as a church are uh, submit to the authorities in our lives and o- that exist over us. You are a dual citizen. You are called to love your neighbor as yourself. And so you are called as a human being to do some things that the church, as church, is not called to do. So having made that distinction, we're talking about the church as church and not us as members of the church, not us as individuals, here's what we can say. If our basic focus is up and out, uh, heavenly and spiritual, what do we do? How, How do we behave? What should be our mission? Well, it should come as no surprise to you that our mission is heavenly and spiritual. The work in which we are engaged is a heavenly and spiritual work. That is what the church is designed to do. If you are a part of a boating club, you should expect to boat. If you are a part of a pilgrim kingdom, then what you should be expecting to do is to pursue the the future reality that God has promised. You do what Abraham did. You do what Moses did. You pursue the promises of God as a body together, helping one another to obtain that which has been promised. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able to even raise uh, the dead. By faith, Moses. By faith, all of these uh, uh, people did extraordinary things. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What do you do as the church? What is our job as church? Our job is to pursue the city of God. We are on a pilgrimage together in pursuit of, of God's city, a city which is currently heavenly and which is future in our expectations. That's why you've never heard Eric or I take a stance on a political candidate because we, we have stances on political candidates. We will vote, I presume, come November for a political candidate, But we don't hitch the church's wagon to a political ideology because the church's wagon has already been hitched to the kingship of Christ and Him alone. We don't divide the church in that way. What is it lawful for us to do as a church? We are called as a church to shepherd the flock to the city of God. That's our basic fundamental calling. And that's why week after week we do what Jesus did. We proclaim the truth to those who will hear. We disciple. That's what Jesus tells us to do. What What are the apostles supposed to do? They're to proclaim the truth and to disciple. Baptize and disciple the nations. That's what we do. We gather from the world those who are being saved and we disciple them on to glory. And as we do that, the blessings overflow. As we seek to disciple young women involved in young lives, showing them, helping them pursue the kingdom of God, they are blessed with Every other kind of blessing, financial help, help with raising children. As we proclaim the gospel, God gathers to us those who are being saved. That's our basic task. We can do other things, provided they support and flow from our basic orientation as a spiritual and heavenly institution. We can run soup kitchens. We can do charitable things. We can be involved in the surrounding uh, issues of our neighborhoods. But in all of this, we keep as our focus Christ and His kingdom, the truth He called us to proclaim, the nurture He called us to inculcate, that we together might pursue this heavenly future reality, the kingdom of God on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is now in heaven. That's our pursuit as the church of Jesus Christ. And as we pursue that, seeking first the kingdom of heaven, God adds all these other things unto us to bless us as we seek his kingdom. Let's pray.